So here we are uh, picking up where we left off the last time. Just a, just a brief review to put you in context. Uh, saving faith, uh, this is what we covered before. That's why it's going to be quick. Saving faith is the internal conviction that trust in Jesus is a fond of conviction and trust that Jesus is God's answer to the problem of our sin. John writes in verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. Once we are saved, John tells us, we are connected to God by the new birth. We are also connected through His love, His love, to His children. So if we love God, we'll love His children because His love flows through us to others. John writes by this, We know that we love the children of God when we love God and we keep His commandments. Third, he writes, it is new, this new love for God that makes our obedience joyful. It's not painful to serve God because we love God. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Fourth, he said, and this, and it is our love for God that produces our victory over the world. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Just like truly loving our new soulmate, when we finally meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, breaks the bonds of all those old relationships. Just like that, we went from all of a sudden having two or three girlfriends or boyfriends, and then we meet Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful, and boom, all those others are gone just like that. Experiencing God's unfathomable love in our lives breaks the bond of sin. So whereas we used to sin in the past and we enjoyed it, we got away with it, we took joy in it. Now when we fail God and we sin, all of a sudden we're miserable and we realize we want to do better. That bond of sin, that control that sin had in our lives is broken. Not because we're trying harder, not because we're doing something differently, but because God loves us and we love God. And then the final point, of last week, which is where we pick up today. The key, of course, is to believe. That's the issue. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, when this was all new to me, uh, I was a brand new Christian, uh, probably been saved a year. Uh, we found ourselves in a little Baptist church in a town called Greensboro, Maryland, on the Eastern Shore, and I had a pastor. Ralph Michaels was his name. His wife was Lorna. And Ralph sort of took me under his wing, as it were, and began to mentor me. And I would have all these uh, typical new Christian questions, you know. And I remember one time we were sitting at his dining room table after church. And uh, we, we all sat around in a circle with Lorna on the kitchen side so she could get up and get stuff. And I was sitting there kind of backed up against the wall. And I said to him one time, what, what if all this is not true? And he said, what if all what is not true? And I said, well, what if this whole salvation by faith, Jesus dying for my sins, this idea that, you know, uh, my faith is enough to get me into heaven. What if that's not true? And Ralph answered me like he always answered me. And I don't have it here with me. I have my Bible printed here. But he would pick up his Bible and he would turn a few pages and he'd always read me something. It was like always like, come on, isn't there anything you don't have a Bible verse that answers to? And what he said was, he said, you know, if I get to heaven, Ralph talking now, if I get to heaven and I find out that I've been wrong, I'm just going to find a Bible and open up and say, didn't it say this here? Didn't it say this here? In other words, his confidence is in God is based on the Word of God. Now, I would add something to that. 
I would say, yes, that's true. My confidence in God is based on the Word of God, and I'm convinced, and I know uh, many have said it before me, that if you have a question and you pray about it, and you go to the Scriptures, and you study the Scriptures, you will find the answer to that. The counter to every false doctrine is already printed in the Bible. You can find it if you look for it. And uh, you don't have to kill yourself because you got the Holy Spirit to guide you. So you just simply say your question. You know, I said, well, what if this is not true? I'll show you those Scriptures in just a minute. What if this is not true? He said, I would go to this. But I would counter that by saying, the fact that when I met Jesus Christ, when I prayed that prayer, you know, say, well, is that enough or do I have to do good works? When I prayed that prayer, my life dramatically changed and the Holy Spirit came into my life and began to teach me and lead me and change me. And all these previous five points became true for me, not because I did anything, but simply because I called on God to save me. That was the proof. Now, what Ralph read... Yeah, if my memory is correct, this was 50 years ago. Ephesians chapter 2, But God who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherein He loved us, even when we were dead in sins. That was me, laying in my bed that evening, reading a book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, telling me that Jesus died for my sins. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, and that means made us alive together with Christ, or by grace. And grace means unmerited favor. It means you didn't deserve it. it. means you didn't work for it. For by grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. Why did he save us? So he could love us and demonstrate his incredible love, his exceeding richness of his unmerited favor in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. That is some powerful scripture. For by grace are you saved, unmerited favor. For by unmerited favor are you saved. You didn't do anything yourself. Through faith. And that, I'm assuming that means that faith. That's the way I've always interpreted the verse. And that faith is not of yourselves. Even the ability to believe is the gift of God. That's why we can go to him doubting like I did that night. And I said to him, Lord, if this is true, let it be true for me. Or like the man said to Jesus that day, Lord, I believe, but help mine unbelief. You go to him with what faith you have and you say to him, I need your help and I can't do it without you. Please help my unbelief. And he does. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, I have to tell you, I really doubt if we get to heaven, if Ralph is going to open a Bible and read it to God. I didn't mention it then, never crossed my mind at the time, but I seriously doubt, first of all, that he's going to find the Bible. Maybe they're stacked around on the shelves, I don't know. But secondly, I really don't think he's going to dare open it and read it to the one who wrote it. Nonetheless, he made a great point with me. And the point is this, our faith rests in the Word of God. Now, I again would like to carry it a step further because I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and because he came in and radically changed my life, I know I can trust him. And the fact that he has gone on record as stating that the Bible is trustworthy, that we can believe the Bible, every word, every jot, and every tittle is trustworthy, since he substantiates it. You know, people say, well, this whole story about Jonah is a fake. Well, Jesus didn't say it was a fake. He said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights so he, Jesus is substantive in the earth, I think he said. Uh, 
Jesus is substantiating that fact. And if you go back, you'll find that Jesus substantiates a lot of these things in the Old Testament with his own testimony. And the fact that Jesus believed it, well, that was good enough for me, or that is good enough for me. But how can I trust the Bible, I asked Ralph. How can I know that? And his response went along these lines. And maybe influenced by some of my teachers along the way, because it's been a long time since Ralph and I were together. He said, God has been writing this book throughout the entire time humans have been on the earth. My, uh, I, I've told you this many times, my Hebrew teacher believes that Adam and Eve could read and write in Hebrew. He believes the original language was Hebrew. He believes all other languages on the earth are derivations and, and changes in Hebrew. And the further you move away from uh, the Middle East, the, the stranger the lang languages get. He also believed, and I hope he's wrong, David Skinner, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be enrolled in Hebrew 1 class. And I really hope, if there ever was a gift of tongues, I hope it's when I arrive in heaven, you know. But the point is that he passed these messages down. Now, some will tell you, no, these were oral traditions that were passed down from Adam to his sons, the faithful sons, all the way down till his sons passed them on to Noah. Noah carried them on the ark. Now, Dr. Skinner believes they're already written down in scrolls. And when we talk about the five books of Moses, what we're talking about is Moses putting it all together. We're not talking about Moses writing it from the beginning. Noah carried them on the ark if they were scrolls, and he carried the stories in his heart on the ark if they were stories. Later, uh, passing them down to trustworthy followers, followers until Moses came along and had the time and sat down and put them all together in a scroll. Moses wrote the first five books, except they weren't books. You know, Christians invented books. Christians found out that scrolls were unwieldy if you're reading them over and over, so they cut, they cut the books, they cut the scrolls into pages, and they, they, they tied the pages together, and they were the first ones to make books. Uh, Moses only added those words that God gave him. And faithful prophets have been adding to those scriptures ever since. The Jews have faithfully protected and copied these writings from the earliest beginning. All this is in preparation for what looks like a mistake in the King James Version. Their accuracy and fidelity to the truth is easily proven through many manuscripts that still exist. We have 5,400 copies, not full copies, but pieces of the Greek New Testament. We have many, many copies of Hebrew we also have the, uh, the, the Old Testament in Greek. And you can compare the Greek and the Hebrew to look for consistency. We can compare Greek translations to the Hebrew translations. Greek translation 250 years before Christ to our, to our, most, to our oldest Hebrew copies, which are about 200 years after Christ. So we're looking at 500 years apart. We can compare those two, and the only differences are a couple of prepositions here and there. There's no significant difference between them. The Jews have done a terrific job of preserving the scriptures. Careful study shows the incredible accuracy of these scriptures. It's really a remarkable story. Now, in this ancient text, talking about the Old Testament, in this ancient text is an endless stream of prophecies concerning God's plan. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and you can see the plan of salvation. Ralph, how can I know this is true? You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and see the plan of salvation. But you can go all the way up to Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and see the exact same plan. And you can follow that plan of God from 
chapter to chapter, book to book, all the way through the Old Testament. Yes, there's a lot of history in there, and in some of it, there's a lot of names, and in others, there's a lot of rules, but it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are as many as 350, and I've never heard anyone give a definitive count. There's as many as 350 prophecies about just Jesus alone in the Old Testament. Now think about that. And every one of them came true. And the point that I would like to make is every one of them came true literally. So if it said, you know, he's going to be meek and lowly, he was meek and lowly. That wasn't a metaphor for something else. If he said he was going to come in riding on a, on a, a foal of a donkey, he, he came in riding on the foal of a donkey. It was a literal fulfillment. And because of that, see, because of that, we know that we can trust the Scriptures. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is substantiated and prophesied, and those prophecies have been fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. And now John adds this other point. That was six points. Now, I'm sorry, that was five. Now he adds a sixth point. We can believe this because God himself has given us the evidence. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, I don't know how many of you have read this and thought, huh? But I did. When I read this, I thought, what is this? You know. And the next verse is, uh, he is he that came by, uh, let's see, for there are three that bear record in heaven. I'll get to that in a minute. There's a lot of discussion about the meaning of these verses, and there's three principal interpretations of verse 6. You know, uh, I like the third one, just to tell you on the front end. There's an there's a explanation that uh, the blood and the water in this reference in verse 6 is a reference to the cross where Jesus was crucified when that Roman soldier put that spear in his side and blood and water came through. And certainly, that is a testimony to the human the humanity of Christ. Now, the argument that John is making here is whatever these, uh, this water and blood is, it's a testimony to the, the physical presence, the physical reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have to remember, in John's day, there were people saying that Jesus wasn't a real human. He just looked like a real human. Uh, and because of that, John goes to... That, that was a, a group of Gnosticists agnostics that were teaching that. And John's going to some trouble here in this book to refute the Gnosticism, the heresy of his day. There's another group that says that the reference of water is a reference to human birth, that he came through with human birth processes and that he died, the blood a reference to the fact that he died a violent death. The third is the one I like the most, but the truth is you can't argue one or the other. Theologians have written books on each of the viewpoints, you know. Still others, myself included, say that this is a reference to, the water is a reference to his baptism, and the blood is a reference to his crucifixion. And it was at his baptism that God the Father spoke from heaven. Now remember, we're arguing, why should I believe? And the answer is, God substantiated, God proved that Jesus was his son at his baptism when God said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And the Holy Spirit uh, testified that Jesus was the Son of God when he came down and landed on Jesus' shoulder in the form of a dove. You also have at the cross where God once again spoke and 
I'm getting confused about that. Where once a God, God testified, and there were at least three miracles that testified to the divinity of Christ. When you had uh, the three hours of darkness, you had the veil and the temple torn from the top to the bottom, and you had the saints, many of the saints, Matthew writes, uh, which were in the graves, arose, and what were seen walking about the city. So you had those three testimonies of God through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Now, the ultimate proof, of course, was that three days later came the resurrection. And there, the disciples saw him over a period of many days, and 120 of his disciples all saw him at one time. So when John is writing this, you have to realize that there were still people alive that either, either experienced these events... Or they knew people who experienced these events. They say, yeah, my mother was there. My uncle was there. You know, John, at the time of this writing, was in Ephesus. He was living in a Gentile city. But the fact remains that all the Christians were driven out of town anyway. And after A.D. 70, all the Jews were driven out of town. So there were a lot of people around that had actually experienced these events. Now, John is establishing for us the historical factualness of the Incarnation. The fact of Jesus' humanity, his physical existence, and his ministry on earth. Now you could go on and add to that by all the different miracles that Jesus did. That's, that's the Holy Spirit testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. But John only mentions here the beginning, which I believe is the baptism, and the end, which is the cross. Now in Jewish thought, and in a Jewish court of law, a point is proven by the presence of three witnesses. So you have the water and the blood and the spirit. And that's what John says next. But in between, it appears, uh, unfortunately, that a Catholic scribe added what we call verse 7. So verse 6 we've already read, this is he that came by water and blood. Even Jesus, not by water only, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. And then there's this phrase that I've highlighted in red, for there are three that bear record. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now, John is making the point that these evidences are coming from God, testifying to the reality of son of his son and there are three witnesses which are required in a Jewish court of law now the argument is why would you believe me when God himself testified to the divinity of the son so that's the argument here but it got a little confused here because of the addition of verse 7 and people say what's that talking about now A.T. Robinson <laughs> believes that a Latin scribe got caught up in Cyprian's teaching. And in Cyprian's Bible, there was this note on the side, and they believed that that, that scribe added it in. But before the 14th century A.D., 1,400 years after Christ, this scripture did not appear in any of the Greek manuscripts. As I said, we've got 5,000 5, pieces of manuscripts. So this, this phrase did not appear. Now I bring all that up because some of you are sitting there with the old King James Version and it has what I have on the screen. Some of you are sitting there with a new international version and it's not there at all. And you're thinking, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then some of you have the new King James Version and it has this written in there. Uh, 
Late manuscripts of the Vulgate testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth. This phrase, they didn't say that. You see what they actually wrote in the King, New King James. This phrase, not found in any Greek manuscript before the 14th century. So this was, a, this was a later addition to clarify. By the way, although I don't believe it's inspired, I don't believe that phrase is inspired, I do believe it's accurate. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's just copying down a note from origin, and I think it just got included in the Latin Vulgate uh, by mistake. And I think that's how it ended up in the King James, because your King James Version is derived from the Latin. I hope that doesn't offend anyone. So if you read the New International Version, this is how that reads, which is more accurate. And the King James, the New King James, tells you it's not supposed to be there, but it includes it. But there, this is the New International Version, if you have that. Or many of the newer translations. I think the American Standard, but I didn't go back and look. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. That's the argument. The Holy Spirit, the water, I'm saying the baptism and the crucifixion. And the three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, this is the point. God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given us of his spirit. Well, that's the main point. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. Stephen Cole writes of this verse, John's point here is that God has borne witness to his son. Why do you worry about what men are talking about if God has borne witness to his son? The Father and the Spirit bore witness to Jesus at his baptism in which Jesus identified with sinners, although himself did not need to be baptized. Jesus, when he went into that water, was a symbol of the repentance of sin. John, be baptized in, the, John baptized in repentance. Jesus went into that water and was baptized in an immersion of repentance, even though he himself didn't need to be baptized because he'd never sinned. But he did that to identify with us. That's the point. The Holy Spirit testified of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry when he substantiated his miracles and his teaching. And God confirmed that witness, this is Stephen Cole, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thus John's point, the Apostle John that we're reading now, is that God provided a threefold witness to his son, the spirit, the water, and the blood. It's all trustworthy. In a court of law, truth is established that way. Now this is important because you know that the Jews of Jesus' day could not conceive of a Messiah that would come and die. They had no idea that Jesus was going to offer his life on a Roman cross and suffer death in our place. They did not get that. The disciples after the crucifixion, walking on the Emmaus Road, had no idea what was going on. And when Jesus pulled up alongside of them and said, Whoa, how's it going, guys? They said, What are you what are you just the first time you've ever been in this city? You know, Jesus said, well, you boys do look a little depressed. What's going on? They said, well, haven't you heard anything? You know, and it's at that point that this Luke adds, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus, he, uh, Luke writes, uh, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And the scriptures gave them the clear testimony that the son was intended to die. The risen Lord pointed out to the men on the Emmaus road, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Throughout the Old Testament, this has been prophesied. You just didn't get it. That's all. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Well, so what? This is the point. You believe God, and he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of the Son. You know, it's one thing to say, I don't believe John. There, there are plenty of Christians who say, I only believe the, the, the stuff in red. You know, I don't believe the black ink. I only believe the red ink. And there are actually people that have just Bibles of the words of Jesus. Doesn't matter whether you like Paul. My, my sister used to always say Paul was a, Paul hated women. You know, Paul's a, what was that, a misogynist? Is that a woman hater? Is that the right word? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, doesn't matter. John's point is, God testified of his son. This is the point. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit is in you and testifying to you. Either we accept God's testimony, or if we reject God's testimony, we're calling him a liar. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It's as simple as that. It's not a question of how much you work or how hard you can go or how much you can get done or how many times you come to church or how many times you've been baptized. It's an issue of whether you have the Son or you don't have the Son. It's as simple as that. God has gone on record that eternal life is through His Son. And this is the record. Not the record of John, but the record of God that God hath given to us eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. If you have the Son, you have life. What must we do with this testimony? Clearly, we must receive it. And we must believe it personally. It has to be something between you and God. If we do not believe it, we make God a liar. If we do receive it, we have a sure foundation to our faith. We have this guarantee. These things I have written unto you, John writes, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, emphasis mine, that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this time of celebration and a chance to visit and catch up with old friends. Thank you for Jeff making the journey all the way up here just to visit family and friends. And Lord, we pray you'd help him to get home safely. Thank you for Grace coming up to visit. And thank you for bringing in uh, the currents from so far away safely once again as they came back from the West Coast. Father, our prayer today is that not one person sitting here in this audience would have, would not have the Lord Jesus in their heart. My prayer is that every single one has made a personal commitment to and invitation to the Lord Jesus to come in and take over their life. It's, this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.